Chapter Two of Ashton Kirk, Investigator, by John Thomas McIntyre. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pete Milan. Chapter Two, Miss Edith Vale states her case. It was exactly three minutes later when the continuous tooting of a horn told of the approach of another motor car along the crowded street. Then the doorbell rang. Ashton Kirk arose and touched one of a series of buttons in the wall. Almost instantly, a buzzer made sharp reply. He lifted a tube. If it is Miss Edith Vale, spoke he, show her up. A little later, a knock came upon the door. The grave-faced German opened it, ushering in an astonishingly lovely girl, tall, most fashionably attired, and with a manner of eager anxiety. Both men arose. "'Considering that you are under twenty-five, said Pendleton, "'you are remarkably prompt in keeping your engagements, Edith.' But the girl did not answer his smile. There was a troubled look in her brown eyes. She tugged nervously at her gloves to get them off. "'This is Mr. Ashton Kirk?' she asked. "'It is,' answered Pendleton. "'Kirk, this is my cousin, Edith Vale.' Ashton Kirk gave the girl a chair. She sat down, regarding him all the time, with much interest. The gloves were removed by now, but she continued plucking at the empty fingers and drawing them through her hands. "'I have heard of you quite frequently,' said she to Ashton Kirk but did not dream that I would ever be forced to benefit by your talents. Mr. Pendleton has been kind enough to arrange this interview at my request, and I desire to consult you upon a most important matter, a very private matter. Pendleton caught the hesitating glance which she threw at him and reached for his hat. Edith, said he, after all I have done for you, this is very distressing. I had not expected to be bundled out in this manner. She smiled faintly and nodded. Thank you, Jimmy, she said. You are a nice boy. After Pendleton had gone, Miss Vale sat for some moments in silence, and all the time her eyes went from one part of the room to another, curiously. She seemed to be trying to estimate the man whom she came to consult by his surroundings. At one side, rank on rank of books ran from floor to ceiling. Others were scattered about in chairs, on stands, and on the floor. At one spot, the wall was racked with glittering, and to her, strange-looking instruments. An open door gave a glimpse of a second apartment with bare, plastered wall, fitted with tables covered with sheet lead, and cluttered with tanks, grotesquely swelling retorts, burners, jars, and other things that make up a complete laboratory. But these told her nothing, except that the man was a student, and this she had heard before. So she gave her attention to Ashton Kirk himself. He stood by the open window, the morning light beating strongly upon his dark, keen face, apparently watching the uncouth surging in the street below. "'He's very handsome and very wealthy,' her friend Connie Bayless had informed her only that morning. "'Comes of a very old family.' has the entree into the most exclusive houses, but practically ignores society. Oh, yes, I know him, her uncle, an eminent attorney, had told her. 
a very unusual young man. I might call him acutely intellectual, and he is an adept in many out-of-the-way branches of knowledge. He would make a wonderful lawyer, but has too much imagination. Thinks more of visionary probabilities than of tangible facts. As an amateur actor, Pendleton had confided to her, Kirk is without an equal. If he adopted the stage, he'd make a sensation. At college, he was a most tremendous athlete, too. Football, cross-country running, wrestling, boxing, and I'm told that he still keeps in training. Clever chap. I never saw a more splendid natural equipment for languages, said Professor Hutchinson. The most sprawling dialect seemed a simple matter to him. Greek and the Oriental tongues were no more trouble in his case than the first reader is to an intelligent child. She had spoken with Mrs. Stokes Corbin over the telephone. Mrs. Stokes Corbin was related to Ashton Kirk, and her information was kindly but emphatic. My dear, said the lady, I do hope you haven't fallen in love with him. No? Well, that's fortunate. He's one of the dearest fellows in the world, but one of the most extraordinary. I can't fancy his marrying at all. His ways and moods and really preposterous habits would drive a wife mad. You can't imagine the extent of them. He spends days and nights in positively uncanny chemical experiments. Without a word to anyone, he plunges off on some mysterious errand to be gone for weeks. They do tell me that he is, to all intents and purposes, a policeman, but I really can't quite credit that, you know. He loves to do things that others have tried and failed. Even as a boy he was that way. It was quite discouraging to have a child straighten out little happenings that we had all given up in despair. Sometimes it was quite convenient, but I'm not sure that I ever liked it. A charming talker, my dear. He knows so much to talk about. But he's eccentric, and an eccentric young man is a frightful burden to those connected with him. All these things passed through the mind of Edith Vale as she sat regarding the young man at the window. Finally, he lifted his eyes and turned them upon her. Beautiful eyes. Remarkable. Full of perception. Compelling. As he caught her intent, inquiring look, he smiled. She colored slightly, but met his glance bravely. Last night I heard you spoken of, she said, and it occurred to me that you could aid me. I should be glad to, said he. It sometimes happens that I can be of service to persons extraordinarily circumstanced. If you will let me hear your story, for, with a smile, all who come to see me as you have done have a story, I shall be able to definitely say whether your case comes within my province. She hesitated a moment, her hands nervously engaged with the gloves. Then she said, frankly, I suppose it is only sensible to speak quite candidly with you, Mr. Ashton Kirk, as one does with a lawyer or a physician. He nodded. Of course, said he. For another moment, she seemed to be turning her thoughts over and seeking the best means of making a beginning. It is very silly of me, I know, she said, but I feel quite like the working girl who writes to the correspondence editor of an evening paper for advice in smoothing out her love affairs. She bent toward him, the laugh vanishing from her face a troubled look taking its place, and continued. I am to be married. Some day. 
and it is about that that I wish to speak to you. I realize the difficulties of the subject, spoke Ashton Kirk quietly. What I am going to tell you I have never mentioned to anyone before. It has been three years ago, four years at Christmas time, since I first met Alan Morris, she said. Our engagement so quickly followed that my friend said it was a very clear case of love at first sight. Perhaps it was. However that might be, we were very happy for a time. But trouble was in store for us. I had always disbelieved in long engagements, had always been very outspoken against them, in fact. This is perhaps what made me so quickly notice an absence of haste on Mr. Morris's part as to the wedding. When the subject came up, as it naturally would, he seemed to avoid it. At first I was surprised, but finally I grew annoyed and spoke my mind very frankly. You see, he is not at all well off, and I am... well, I have a great deal. I thought this might have something to do with his apparent reluctance. But no, it was something else. As I just said, I spoke frankly, and he was equally candid after a fashion. He said it was quite impossible for us to be married for some time. There was a something, he did not say what, which must first be settled. Naturally, I grew curious. I desired to know what it was that so stood in the way of our happiness. He replied that it was something that must not be spoken of, and was so very earnest in the matter that I did not mention it again for a long time. You may think, Mr. Ashton Kirk, that my fiancé was no very ardent lover, but I was assured, and I do not lack perception, that he was passionately fond of me. And I still think so. But as time went by, things did not alter. Our wedding was a vague expectation, even more than before Mr. Moore's avoided mention of anything definite. I am not naturally patient, and my rearing as the only child of an enormously rich man has perhaps added to my impetuousness. In a burst of temper one day, I broke the engagement, gave him back his ring, and did a number of other rather silly things. But he was so tragic in his despair, so utterly broken-hearted and white, that I immediately relented, and we patched the matter up once more. That he loved me was plain, but that he could not marry me for some mysterious reason, was even plainer. After this, I began to notice a change in him. He was rather silent and given to reverie. He seldom laughed. Sometimes he was haggard and so wrought up, apparently, that he could scarcely contain himself. He would pace the floor, evidently with little realization as to what he was doing. Once he was really dreadfully agitated. I calmed him as well as I could, and he sat for a long time, thinking deeply. As I watched him, he sprang to his feet and, dashing his fist upon a table, cried out passionately, "'The black-hearted rascal! He's mocking me!' Then, like a flash, he realized the strangeness of his conduct, and with anxious, alarmed face asked my pardon. I felt that this was an opportunity to put an end to a situation that was growing intolerable. My persistent questioning gained me something, but on the whole, not a great deal. The thing that was troubling him was a business matter. In some way he was in the hands of someone, 
these are the indefinite threads that I gathered, a mocking, jeering, smiling someone whom he hated, but from whom he could not free himself. I began to tell him that there could be nothing strong enough in itself to prevent our happiness. But he stopped me in such a way that I did not feel inclined to continue. In an outburst filled with denunciations of his enemy and protestations of devotion to myself, I caught the name of Hume. He had dropped this inadvertently. I knew it instantly because of the swift look that he gave me. But I allowed no hint of what I thought to show in my face. He was more subdued during the remainder of his stay. The mentioning of the name had startled him, and he was doubtless afraid that his state of mind would lead him into further indiscretions. As you may suppose, the name, the first tangible thing that I had learned, was of much interest to me. If I could but find out who this person was, I could probably get to the bottom of the matter. At this point, Miss Vale paused, and Ashton Kirk noted her head lift proudly. Perhaps, she continued, it might be thought that I had no right to make such an effort in a matter which Mr. Morse saw fit to keep from me. Were you thinking that? But I am not a silent sufferer. I usually make an end of annoying things without delay. And I would have done so in this case long before, but I was in love. And I could not bear to see Alan suffer by my insistence. However, here was an opportunity to perhaps aid him, and I set to work. In a few hours next day, I had located every person of the name of Hume in the city. Mr. Morris is a consulting engineer. Anyone named Hume who, from his occupation, would be likely to have dealings with him especially attracted my attention. There were only a few, and long before the day was over I had satisfied myself by personal visits at their places of business that they did not even know him. Ashton Kirk smiled. One of his well-kept hands patted applause upon the arm of his chair. "'You are strong,' said he. "'I recognized your type when you came in. It is a pleasure to have one's judgment so thoroughly and satisfactorily proven.' Miss Vale looked pleased. "'I am glad that you approve of what I did,' she said. "'I confess I had some hesitancy, but not enough to prevent my carrying out the design.' but when the first effort proved without result, I set about making a study of all the Humes in the directory. I had my secretary make me a typed list of them, with their addresses and occupations, and I pored over this for hours at a time. There was one that caught my eye after a while. Probably this was because of the unusualness of his business. The directory gave him as a numismatist, but I drove by his shop in my car, and the sign over the window said that he was also a dealer in curiosities of art. This gave me an idea. Mr. Morris is an ardent collector. His hobby is engraved gems, and for a man of his means, his possessions in this line are quite remarkable. It was easily within the range of possibility that he had had transactions with this particular Hume. At least that he was acquainted with him. The more I thought of this, the more curious I grew. And one afternoon I paid the place a visit. It is on the second floor. The entrance is through a side door and up a narrow, dusty stairway. Then I had to make my way along a dark, windowless passage to the office, or shop in the front. The shop was well lighted, and literally stuffed with what were well termed 
curiosities of art. I never before saw such queer carvings, such freakish pottery, such weird and utterly impossible bric-a-brac. At a table sat a flabby-looking man with a short, sandy beard. One glance told me that he was an habitual drunkard, for he had the sodden look that is unmistakable. But when he arose and bid me good evening, his manner struck me like a blow in the face. Alan Morris had spoken of a mocking person who jeered and smiled, and that described this man exactly. There was mockery in every glance of his dull eyes. Every twitch of his mouth was a fleer. With each gesture he seemed making game of one. Sneering incredulity was stamped all over him. Ashton Kirk leaned forward with keen interest. My manner must have betrayed me, the girl went on, for I saw an inquiring crease come into his forehead. When he asked the nature of my business, his voice was sharp and insolent. I had not thought as to what I should say, what excuse I should give in this case. But almost instantly my mind was made up. About the most conspicuous thing in the room was a squat Japanese idol, a fat, grinning, hideous thing which sat upon a sort of pedestal near the door. So I laid my hand in it. I was told of this, said I, examining the idol minutely, and came in to see it. Ah, yes, said he, but it was plain enough that he did not believe me. I inquired the price of the figure. He named a high one, and I believe I astonished him by purchasing it without another word. The idol was delivered late that afternoon. I had it unpacked at once and placed where Mr. Morris could not fail to see it when he called. A clever plan, commented Ashton Kirk admiringly. He saw it when he entered the room and greeted me. He was smiling, and the smile froze on his lips. His face went pale, and he turned a look upon me that filled me with fear. It was so wan and startled. I had intended telling him the full truth if my ruse succeeded, but after that look I could not. I convinced him by a nonchalant manner and story that I had come by the idol accidentally. At least I think I convinced him, though I noticed his watching me steadily from under very level brows more than once during the evening. But if he had any suspicions that I was deceiving him, he did not put them into words. Here Miss Vale paused for a moment. Then she resumed. I tried, in various ways, to gain a knowledge of the relationship between my fiancé and this sneering shopkeeper. But they were all ineffectual. Mr. Ashton Kirk, this occurred fully three months ago, and the situation remains the same as it was upon that night. Then, with a suddenness that startled the young man, she lifted two trembling hands to her face and began to sob gaspingly. When she took the hands away, there were no signs of tears. But her beautiful face was drawn with pain, and her voice shook as she said, I don't think I can stand it much longer. I beg of you not to think lightly of my story, for the thing that stands between Alan Morris and myself is deadly. As I watch him, I can see that his heart is breaking, his health is failing, there is a look of fear in his eyes. She reached forward, and her hand rested upon the sleeve of Ashton Kirk. He is at the mercy of this mocking monster that I have described to you. 
it is killing him. And through him it is killing me. Help me. Please. Ashton Kirk smiled reassuringly. As far as I can see, said he, the case is a simple one. However, it may turn out the reverse. But in either event, I can promise you a swift and energetic attempt to set the matter right. Thank you. She stood up. And you will begin today? At once. You are kind. She held out her hand. He took it. Thank you, again. Stumpf appeared in answer to the bell. She turned to go. There is nothing more that you can tell me? He inquired. Nothing. I had supposed that. Your recital sounded pretty complete. When the door closed upon her, he stood for a few moments in the middle of the floor, his head bent forward, his hands behind him. Then he turned and touched another of the system of bells. Immediately a brisk, boyish-looking young man presented himself. Fuller, spoke Ashton Kirk, I want instant and complete information upon one Hume, a local numismatist, and Alan Morris, consulting engineer. Very well, sir. And Fuller turned at once and left the room. End of chapter 2